Thank you guys so much for joining us for yet again another episode of the Being Alive podcast, a weird weekly podcast from Even Weirder Boy, the podcast made for students by students. Now, according to WeForum, 57% of young women in the UK identify themselves as feminists, with 19% of women aged 18 to 24 identifying as feminists as well. This week's guest is incredibly informed about the subject. Um, this is someone who I had the esteemed honor of hearing speak a few years of the Barbican's Battle of Ideas, all about um, feminism um, and its progression in our society today um, and has led, especially as a young person, led an incredibly wonderful campaign that gained so much national attention. And without further ado, I'm just really pleased and excited to, to, to introduce you all to Laura Corrington. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on here and yeah, hear your thoughts on feminism. Honestly, guys, I, I think it's really important that we, like, I contextualise this for you, that Laura isn't like incredible in terms of the work that she's achieved um and you know i've said this to her before in in the planning of this that i remember hearing you speak at the barbican and instantly as i got home that night i signed the petition and it was the first petition that i ever signed signed as a young person um just because of how brilliant the cause is and how how well and strongly you fought for it um and i think that might be the first thing that we go on to talk about the end tampon tax campaign so interestingly at some point last week i was reading the interview that you did with global citizen and you were talking about how the idea from this came from reading a buzzfeed article can you can you talk to us a little bit about how that took place yeah so um it was when i was at university and um, I sort of just discovered like the scholarly aspect of feminism and it was really exciting and a lot of my friends sort of like posted um, articles about feminism to my Facebook wall at the time it was Facebook everybody used that and now it's <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's how old I am um, and <laughs> my friend Verity actually she posted this um, article of a load of random things that we get taxed on and within that list was period products mm. so then I just thought when I first saw that I thought you know oh well I knew nothing about tax um and I thought maybe everything else is taxed more like maybe there was some reasoning for that um and it was during so I went to Goldsmiths for my undergrad and our like final year exams are in our second year and so that I was like gearing up for those exams desperately trying to find reasons not to revise and I thought you know <laughs> looking into the <laughs> might be a good way of doing that um so yeah I started looking into the tax system and I realized that certain things escape tax completely because they're considered to be essential items and these items include genuinely essential things like foods for example um and like newspapers and that sort of thing but it also includes items that are not quite so essential to the average person like maintaining our private helicopters <laughs> absolutely ridiculous like things <laughs> crocodile me and it just seems like yeah that's an interesting fact but then I looked into item 
items that were taxed because they're considered to be not quite as essential and some of which is considered to be luxury items and these include period products and I just thought how, how what a great example in a way of sexism um, played out in real life mm. in that the decision makers at the time who made this tax in 1971 were MPs and um, parliamentarians who were predominantly male still are predominantly male but you know it's changing now um and I could just imagine them being in a room being like oh well do people really need period products I'm not really sure you know period education is so bad even today let alone back then that I could just imagine this lack of understanding and a lack of consultation to people that really have periods majority women and I just thought like, yeah, I needed to sign something. I couldn't find a petition. So I started one and never thought it would be successful, but here we are. <laughs> and we're talking about a petition that got 300,000 signatures. Not only did it do that, it gained support from some, some wonderful politicians um, along the likes of Paula Sheriff. Um, George Osborne at, at one point got involved as editor of the Independent, of the Evening Standard. Um, and to make things you know, further more incredible, you essentially launched what became a nationally talked about campaign at the age of 24. I mean, this is a podcast for young people. And I just think that it's it's incredible that we really highlight the fact that this all kicked off when you were 24. So this would this have been, sorry, forgive me, guys. Um, so in terms of a record, you mentioned that you, you did your, your undergrad in international relations at Goldsmiths. And then the incredible masters at, at Oxford in, in women's studies. So you were still in academia when all of this kicked off. Yes, so um, I was 21 when it all started back in 2014. And um, yeah, doing my studies. And actually, I think it was more difficult running a campaign alongside a like, nine to five job mm. than it was at university. University, you can kind of like tie it into your studies. You're more flexible. You're more in control of your time. But when you're working and I worked for a couple of mainstream political parties, it's very, very difficult to kind of like keep on top of your job nine to five, but then fit in, you know, um, lobbying and uh, running the campaigns and connecting with all of our international campaigns at the same time and being aware of what's happening in the general news media outside of the campaign to kind of like help push it forward. Um, so then I went back into academia, did the master Oxford, which made it more you know, straightforward again. And then now I'm back at work. So <laughs> it's a bit difficult to do. And I remember I was doing a talk um, for the Fawcett Society and there was someone that asked me that in the audience, said, like, how do you juggle it? Because she'd said that she'd tried to start a feminist campaign when she was at work and her work told her they basically wouldn't support her doing it because they didn't want her to go on, you know, do an interview and say something embarrassing and that would reflect badly on the company. So mm. it's really to, like the practicalities of campaigning outside of school and outside of university is quite hard so I would recommend start campaigning as young as you can <laughs> no absolutely <laughs> and I think it's really interesting because um I also just want to underline the fact that um again this was this was a campaign that you know in March of 2020 Rishi Sunak um, agreed with, with the mission of the campaign um, and promised to remove the 5% value added tax on, on period products. Um, and what, what does that, especially like, what does that moment feel like when, when you have the chance of the exchequer say, you know, I'm going to meet you in the middle here? It was amazing. And it, I think in a way it was good for me. Maybe it was easier for me than it is for other, campaign, other mm. campaigners because um, so George Osborne, um, like back in 2016, said that he would axe tampon tax as soon as he legally can. 
um, which meant like jumping through a whole load of you know hoops is a very long story but <laughs> um, at that point I was thinking like oh my god it's finished it's done we've you know we've done it all and it's this weird feeling of obviously being really happy that your campaign has succeeded because you've never imagined it would but at the same time feeling like oh my god this thing I've dedicated my life to for years is over and it's just this weird mix of emotions so when it finally actually happened in 2020 it was just like this feeling of absolute relief being like oh my gosh it is actually finally open now and um I just thought and you know and you just have to think about how good it is for like your other petitions so we have tampon petitions now in every continent across the world from Tanzania um India succeeded Canada succeeded all across the USA all across Europe European Union as well so for one country to succeed it's just so good in pushing those campaigns forward because they can say you know the UK has done it why can't we <laughs> and it's, it's the turning of a brand new leaf. And honestly, like the segues are just brilliant because what I was literally just about to ask you was, was how this national victory turns into a much wider global mission. Um, because, I, you know, March 2020 comes along and you've gone, well, that's the UK ticked off, ticked off the, the, the list. And, and, and where is next? Um, and how was it um, for you to, to start expanding this, this national protest into a much bigger international mission? Yeah, that's such a great question because I just think that's a great way to think about campaigning in general, like how you fit into other people's work. Um, and in terms of like turning it into a national kind of conversation, that was really exciting because I got to go home, for example, to Devon and meet, I was like hang out with my friends and one of my friend's mums uh, came downstairs um, and she said to me, um, oh, Laura, I really like your petition because I used to campaign for this when I was your age. And then when I met Stella Creasy, MP, who was like a great supporter of the campaign, she said that she used to campaign for this when she was at school. So it just goes to show there are so many generations of people that have been campaigning for this. Mm. Um, it's just so great to be able to sort of like take that and like use this power of the internet that we have, power of online campaigning, of mobilizing, of lobbying that we've never had access to before to make light of all of those efforts and like really focus them so that we can win. And that felt really good in that I just, without those generations of people campaigning before me, we would never have won because we wouldn't have had the existing support already there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that felt really good. But then in terms of how it fits into like wider campaigns, obviously the international tampon tax petitions like I was just talking about, but also there's this wider now conversation about period equality really, or like period mm. campaign. So, for example, um, Scotland, Monica Lennon, MSP, she has been amazing in trailblazing so many policies in Parliament. Um, so, like, Scotland has become the first country in the world to offer free period products to anyone who needs them everywhere in public. And Gabby Edlin is campaigning to get that happen across England and Wales as well. Yes. So, if you want to please sign up because <laughs> it's amazing and it will happen. And... Um, there's obviously like Amica George's campaign to get free period products in schools. And I remember she contacted me back in 2015 and she was so sweet. She was like, oh, I've seen your Tampa campaign. Like, how can I help? I'm really keen. And then we were like talking about other campaigns that she could run and then she ran it. And when she first talked about creating this campaign to get free period products in schools, I genuinely thought it wouldn't happen. Mm. And I was like, if anyone could do it, Amica could do it. And she did it. And I was like, this is brilliant. Wow. Amazing. So it just goes to show you like, yeah, what you can do. And um, if you've got the tenacity to do it, like she did not stop. So, And I love yeah. the fact that it's, it's one, it's not only how this one 
um, victory affected you, but how you were able to use that to also inspire a lot of other people, also to help a lot of other people to go and campaign on lots of issues that they feel passionate about. Um, and, I, and I think that's something that's really interesting as well, because um, as young people, um, and you've, you've mentioned this um, about sort of the generational, I can't speak, the generational change of, of the same protest. Um, how do you feel like young people, especially in this day and age, can really uh, maximize things like social media um, and um, the, the speed of the world of the, it's one of those days people, the speed of the world wide web in order to, to get information out there because there is this big generational shift, you know, social media has completely revolutionized what activism looks like. And how do you feel like young people can maximize that? But also how do you feel like your campaign, especially with the, with a platform like change.org, how do you feel like that, that really helped campaigning, especially for you? Oh, I love that question. It's so good. I would also love to hear your thoughts about this and mm. like a young person, <laughs> genuinely young person. Oh no, for sure. <laughs> so, but um, from my perspective at least, I think the most important thing is to just do what you enjoy doing. And there's, I think there's a lot of pressure to be like a social media influencer or like to post things online about certain stuff. And it's just like, if you don't want to do that, that's completely fine. Like I don't particularly enjoy social media. I've got like my personal accounts, but that's really it. Um, and so what I enjoy doing is like the online petitions, the lobbying, the organizing, the like protesting in real life, meeting politicians in real life. So like mixing the online political tools that we've got with like the on the ground campaigning that we can mm. do. So that's what I really enjoy. And I think that's really exciting because it's so fresh and new, like you were saying in terms of you can ignore my friend's mom in Devon, but you can't ignore 300,000 people that have signed a petition. And you can't ignore thousands of those people emailing you as their MP um, to try and get you to change this. So I think that like online organizational tool is what's exciting to me because we're getting so many voices now to the forefront of politics that we've never really heard before because of yes. And like the majority of change or petition signers are women, sharers are women. And the majority of petition starters are men, but the majority of their petitions which succeed, so they reach the goal that they set out for, they're, they're run by women. Mm. So I think that is really exciting and we're getting these new voices coming across. Um, but yeah, I don't know how you feel in terms of like, this: is there a pressure to be a certain way to be an activist online from a young person's perspective? I think it's, it's, there's sort of two ways of looking at this. I think the first one being that, as you, you know, quite rightly said, there hasn't been this shift in um, caring about social issues. I think that these concerns, as you quite rightly pointed out, have always existed and are a key part of you know, societal fabric. I think social media has essentially acted as a catalyst in order to help us solve those issues very quickly. Um, and, I, and I think I always really struggle when people talk about this being the grand woke era, because essentially it, that's not what's happening because we're essentially you know, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years down the line, still arguing and campaigning about the exact same issues. Except that with social media, we're able to get a lot of people on board much more quickly. Um, and I think the other thing I will say about you know, social media as you quite rightly points out, and I was having a conversation about it this week, that I think a lot of people feel like in order to be an activist, you have to become the big leader of the, of the, of the new regime, regime, which no one particularly wants to do. And I think that um, you know, very few of us are going to become you know, the 2022 Greta Thunberg. That's inconceivable. But I think having a passion about something you care about so much that, that you know, pushes you to enact social change is substantial. I, I don't, I don't, and I think with social media, there has become this 
culture of constantly holding people into account because they don't act they're not you know being activists in a traditional sense um, and going out and campaigning on the streets which is absolutely effective but I think that it's also us getting to grips and understanding that the face of activism also looks very different now um, and you know organizing a petition online also counts as activism just as much as it would be to organize a rally in Trafalgar. Definitely yeah I totally agree I think it's interesting what you're saying about the um not wanting to be like this figurehead of mm. massive like Greta Thunberg and I think there are so many movements across history that have shown that you don't have to do that and that a movement can be really successful without a figurehead. You yeah. just have to look at the Hong Kong protest movement for example it's a, a great showcase of a, a group of people a whole load of people you know acting together um for a single cause and being really effective in that um and I think almost like the period activism is kind of similar in that you've got like lots of people working on like lots of really specific goals and we support each other a lot um like promote each other there's no like competition amongst us or anything like that and we all campaign in very different ways as well like some people like to use social media um you know more tr traditionally I guess other people like to use it you know in slightly different ways so I think that's the most important thing um yeah just working together and doing what you enjoy really yeah and I think following on from something you said that um and time for a great segue um that the end time fund taxes is sort of one part of the larger rise of feminism in the past few years um and as i as i mentioned um earlier on the first time i i came across your work was at the battle of ideas at the barbican which for any person listening if you can find the time to be at the battle of ideas this year or any other year i would definitely recommend going it's a level of academic and international intellectual stimulation that i think is just wonderful and you're exposed to all of these um, topics discussed so well by people who really know their stuff inside out so if you do live in the UK and you're listening to this and you can I definitely recommend checking that out this year um, but on the panel conversation I remember was something along the lines of feminism the new f-word there we go um, yeah. and and there was this there was this conversation and a bit of friction actually among the panel um, about why people think that the support of feminism has grown so much over the you know past two decades and why do you think it's, it's really taken off in, in such a way. Um, well, first of all, I want to say that I really, I'm glad that you liked the Battle of Ideas. Oh, it was fantastic. Oh, it was quite intense. <laughs> yes. With Sophie Walker, but she couldn't make it. And they basically like couldn't find a replacement for her. <laughs> like speaking for feminism. And I thought I would be almost like the backup speaker because obviously Sophie Walker has like so much experience. So that I was kind did of, like, not happen. <laughs> And then there was like two people for against and also the person who chairing was against. Feminism. Was against. So I was like, there's like three against one here. <laughs> you have people standing up in the back, like taking off their t-shirts and having like men's rights. Stuff in, on in, the, in, the, in the audience, yes. Asking about <laughs> men's rights. Um, was it Justice for Men? The group was called something along the lines. Yeah, I think yeah. so, I think so. And I was like, oh my gosh, what <laughs> I was so glad that you liked it. Um, but... Yeah, in terms of like um, feminism being pushed forward, I think it is partly because of the internet, really, mm. and like the spread of ideas, and we can organize so much easier. And as you're saying, like these kind of thoughts and feelings and campaigns have, have existed for decades, but they haven't really gained political attention in the same way. 
um, because we haven't had this like online political platform that anyone can kind of access. So we had to use more, maybe more extreme tactics previously in order to get that attention that we needed. So I think, yeah, it's partly to do with that, um, partly to do with obviously like a shift in societal norms, um, which has been facilitated by this online, you know, expansion of power. Um, so yeah, I think all everything's working together really to progress society. And I was just thinking this morning, I was like listening to some a BBC program and um, they were talking about how like there's been a shift even in like parenting because of this. Mm, yes. Previously parents, like, the role of your parent was to kind of tell you, instruct you and in, like how to survive in the world essentially. And nowadays it's parents really have to listen to their children in terms of mm. like how they the world and what kind of changes they want to make because young people are at the forefront of defining what the future of society will be and that kind of shift is really interesting in terms of like generational connections um I don't know what do you think how do you see it I think I think it's really interesting um I think given the rise of feminism I think what's really important to, to realize is that I think women have been given the right to have that conversation and define feminism 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 in their own terms the joys of recording live everybody um and as a result of that i think that's what's really powered forth this this movement because when i think about what feminism was not that i was alive in the 80s but when you read about what feminism was described as in the 80s especially in politics it was always men putting forth their opinion on the issue mm -hmm. and as a result of that you never got to see what the woman's take was on it and you know you'd have men say things and, and, and we're going to get on popular myths of, and misconceptions we're going to play a little game on, on myth busting but what you see happen was that women weren't able to talk about feminism in their own words because men made it seem as sort of this leverage and it's going to cause us further inequality in the opposite direction and I think what was really interesting is that when we entered especially into the 90s what you saw was you know, this huge political liberation, especially for, for female voices in politics. And I think that's what's really accelerated this, 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 this conversation because women are now the primary voice here, which I, which I, and, and being able to speak and defend issues in their own terms. And I think that's what's really driven it forward. Um, I, I wanted to ask if, especially as an English, English literature student who's in love with definitions, if you had to define feminism as to what it means to you, what would you, what would you describe that as? Um, equality of the sexes, I think. I mean, I love the Beyonce song. <laughs> <laughs> definition of feminism. No, um, yeah, just equality, equality of the sexes. And mm. terms of, I think obviously the intersections of feminism is really important in terms of the definition um in that like equality for all rather than just like a certain type of woman yeah um which obviously is like how the feminist discussion has kind of evolved so i think for me the definition of feminism is really important in that it like includes anyone can be a feminist mm. i don't know like if you would describe yourself as a feminist but i would hope that increasingly like young boys would feel okay defining themselves as a feminist as well as anyone else um but i think like Boys, especially, are the last kind of demographic to tap into in terms of the potential they could have to really make feminism achieve its goals. And I think, like, that would be such an amazing next step. Um, yes. And I think that that, you know, goes into brilliantly into We're going to play a bit of a game, Laura. Um, so for anyone who's listening, you might remember this that we played a couple of times over on season two. 
um, myth busting corner. So essentially how it's going to work is we, we've taken an ideology. We're handling feminism this week. Um, and I'm just going to ask a bunch of questions um, and we're going to dispel or prove some, some, some myths that um, soil around populism. Some I think are particularly controversial. So the first one being, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, that feminism is a conversation for women. A lot of men um, or a lot of people would quite rightly say that they support equal rights, but would be hesitant in calling themselves a feminist. What are your thoughts on that? I love how much we segued. I feel like everything we've co- like talked about <laughs> somehow, it just works well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> on the same page. <laughs> Must be that. Um, yeah. So I basically think yeah, um, there is definitely this perception that feminism is not for boys, and like, mm. and I also like appreciate there is an anxiety that goes along with like being self-aware that like as a man you don't want to like take up space in feminist movement of like you know the people who experience the negative side of of um sexism to a more to a greater degree I suppose and that I mean that even isn't true because you know mental health issues affect men just as much but um I, I, I understand like that anxiety completely and I think that's completely fair um but it's a shame, like it's such a shame. And I think the feminist movement will only be truly successful when everyone feels a part of it and everybody mm. feels like it should be a cornerstone of society, um, not just something that a certain percentage of the population can speak about because it does affect everybody. Um, and we know that it does. So yeah, I don't know if that really answers. No, it does. And I think it's really interesting going back to the definition of feminism you offered because you know, I, I just always found it really interesting that you would have people who would say, I definitely support equal rights. Absolutely, undoubtedly, you've got my support on that 100%. But when it comes to labeling themselves as feminists and supporting the movement, there is that hesitancy. But what's really ironic is that they are literally fulfilling um, the ideology by, by supporting equal rights for, for, for both the sexes. So I always think that's really interesting. And I think going on to what you were saying um, and re- reflecting on that, I think in that conversation, there is a level of emotional vulnerability that becomes present very quickly because it takes a lot for you to recognize a your own privilege in a position. It's a word that a lot of people just don't like. You mentioned privilege in a room and everyone gets really tense. But but yes, recognizing your own privilege in a situation and also understanding that you exist in a system and whether or not you think that's good or bad, you benefit from that system whilst other people don't. And I think that's something that's increasingly very difficult for a lot of people to say. And by and a lot of people feel like by saying that they're a feminist, it's sort of an omission of guilt. Mm, that's interesting. That's really interesting in a way because, I mean, to truly acknowledge that you have privilege, you need mm. to use it. Yes. In a way that will like further that cause. Um, and so to realize you have privilege to call yourself a feminist like is a way of empowering that movement and like justifying and validating the movement as a whole um so maybe that's like the next step in it I don't know and I also think it's difficult maybe for boys to describe themselves as feminists because there's something emasculating about it yeah if you if for anyone listening at home please check out this book um by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, all about um, feminism. I can't for the life of me remember what it's called, but it's one of my favorite books of all time, I which is which is now ironic. Everyone should be a feminist. Why? I think uh, yes, a- yes, why we should all be feminists. Yes, yes, based on the TED Talk. It's a fantastic book. I definitely recommend reading. Um, and the key thing about that text, yes, yes, you've got a copy of it. I've got mine upstairs. Love that book to bits. But she talks about how she, the, there is no other word in the English language she despises more than the word emasculating. Um, and that's really interesting to me because 
I also think that there is a lot of strength in 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 you know men calling themselves a feminist and you know we were we were talking earlier about this being people the misconception of this being a conversation for women well even if it is conversations don't work if more than one party's present and that's something that I think a lot of people definitely have to realize because even if it is a conversation of women well a you're wrong because there needs to be a second party present yeah Um, but that book, what we should all be fair, is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is a fantastic read. She's a brilliant writer, and I think what's really interesting is that she has this. She she talks about being a Nigerian and how feminism is expressed, especially through the, through the um, African gaze. But it, it's wonderful because she's got this very no nonsense conversational approach that just guides you through it wonderfully. If you want to learn more about feminism, it's definitely a text I definitely recommend um, picking up. And also, it's a short read, so it's very convenient. I read it all in an afternoon. If 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 there's anyone who thinks, well, it seems interesting, but it, it's a long read, it really isn't, and it's it's worth the time. I think Denmark gave it to like all the students. In As the they school. should. <laughs> it's such a good idea. It's, it's wonderful. Great. And it's so accessible. And that's what I really appreciate about it, because a lot of the time people talk about social or political ideologies. There's always a sort of pretentiousness to it. Um, and it, this is just done in such a way that feels relatable, but also accessible. Um, which I really, which I really appreciate. Second myth, um, and this is something that we heard in the in the Barbican talk, and I think you must hear this all the time: that feminists are obsessed with taking opportunities from from others, mainly men, all in the name of equality. That you can't create an equal society where someone gains without another person losing. What What are your thoughts on that? I think that's really interesting, and you're right. Like it's such an age old um, concern, and I think it does reflect the anxieties of change in general, mm. especially obviously we've had like centuries of you know this divide between like the public sphere being like a masculine sphere for men and then the private sphere being one that's feminine for women yeah Um, and like I just think yeah it's reflective of history and it's not surprising and it's completely understandable and it also is kind of comforting in a weird way because it tells us why change is so difficult and takes so much energy nowadays um so yeah I mean it's, it's really tricky um obviously it's not reflective of reality in that you know there's so many opportunities we want the best person in the job we, we want to give um a mixture of um, opinions and thoughts and there's so much research that shows diverse workplaces are the most productive workplaces and they come mm. up with the most innovative ideas because you have different perspectives you have different skill sets um, different concerns you can tap into different audiences so we know that it's good for society good for the economy good for businesses good for everyone really um and you know no one should feel threatened by feminism I know that's kind of easy for me to say um but I do think it's about evolving rather than taking away and about progression and that should be exciting for everyone um so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. No, no, absolutely. I, I think, I think it's just, it's, you know, also being a person of color, this is, it's also a conversation that I also hear in a very similar light where it's like, you know, with, with things like affirmative action or quotas for women, it's always, you know, I believe in you having equal rights, but I don't support having to lose out as a result of that. And, and my answer to that is it's, to me, it's less about losing out, but leveling out the playing field. Because my what my response to that is, if you feel very strongly that you should be in the room, then there should be nothing wrong with adding a few more players to the selection. 
Um, because there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Because if you genuinely feel that you're good enough to be there, then you'll be there regardless of, of whoever's, whoever gets the chance to be in the room and gets a chance to be in the conversation. So I don't really think you're losing out. If anything, gives you a chance to, to, to win against some, some bigger odds. Um, what you just said brings us down to, to what I've got here as, as um, the third a myth, and I'll tie it in with the fourth one as well. The three, uh, myth, myth three being the idea that supporting feminism leads to um, fragility and the alienation of, of the strong um, man, um, and also that feminism goes around ignoring men's issues and refuses to have them in the limelight. And I think then you have, you know, as we saw in the talk, the rise of these groups like Justice for Men, who who also fight for men's rights, which is which you know is is a notion that's worth supporting. But the idea that men feel like um, you know, feminism completely ignores the male struggles. So I think that's a really interesting, again, like anxiety and concern that like definitely needs addressing um, because it's just so at odds with how like I view feminism. Mm. So if anything, it gives men more opportunities to be themselves, be happy, be able to express themselves and explore their identity. Um, so yeah, if anything, kind of gives them more. And I, I do I do hope that we kind of cover, like the feminist movement covers um, kind of like men's men's issues or issues that men in particular face more mm. in terms of like the mental health aspect of like having to fit this rigid structure of what it is to be a man um, and how that like ne negatively impacts men and the, you know, people around them as well. Um, so I think that is, that is being covered, but I, I hope that it will be covered more as more men join the feminist movement as well. Um, yeah, I don't know how you feel. No, I think I think that's a really interesting one. Um, and I think there is this mis misconception that a huge amount of feminist groups um, always um, prioritize um, women's rights, but that's also because in our society, you know, we exist in the patriarchy. So as a result of that, the world in which we live in wasn't constructed with with equality for women in mind, and it takes a while for us to and, and it takes a while for us to destabilize that world and, and create a world in which everyone is equal. And I don't think that feminist groups go around, you know, alienating or forgetting men's issues. But it's the fact that there is only so much that we can cover in one go, and we'd like to fight this battle first. It's not because you know I can. There are lots of lots of feminists who also think that. Um, you know, men's mental health is incredibly important. And it's not, and I don't think that omission is forgetting it, but I think it's very easy as well to lead a, lead a feminist movement with one clear issue at, at stake. Um, last but not least, and I don't think this is a myth, I think it's an issue that has some area of truth and it's something that I've had a lot of conversations about. Um, um, and it's this idea that a lot of women, especially women in color, feel like feminism has, women of color, feel like feminism has, has this sort of stigma of being the sort of white, middle-class, educated women's sport. And as a result of that, feels like a lot of the struggles of women in color, particularly um, women living outside of the West, are often left, let out, um, you know, left out of. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine a few years ago who said that, I believe in feminism in principle, but also as women of color, I don't feel like it tackles my issues, you know, from the parts of the world that I come from. If you tell some women to, you know, get up and go and campaign in the streets, that is something that they physically cannot do. Um, and she sort of, and, and a lot of people I know struggle with that because it almost feels like 
the Western expression of feminism leaves a lot of women outside of that conversation. I'm just interested to see what you what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. And I think it kind of like, given the history of feminism and the history of like, who could seize power mm. at the beginnings of the feminist movement, um, white women, like white privileged women, educated women um, of like, you know, high class backgrounds, they did kind of take the podium of, of feminism um, to begin with. So like, I am really happy to see that changing. And there is a lot of discussion about, you know, intersectional feminism and different perspectives and um, making sure that everybody is feeling as included as possible. I think that progress is, like, it is a pro process basically mm. that has to happen, but it is like heading in the right direction. We have some amazing um, black feminist writers, for example, as mentioned earlier, <laughs> but there's not, there's not enough. And, and also you want, voices from all different communities um, in terms of not just ethnicity but also like disabilities, um, gender expressions, you know, classes, all that. So I think yeah, the major the, the biggest diversity you can get in terms of the voices in the movement, the best represented you can be of the people it's supposed to serve. Um, and the more effective it's going to be because again you get like way more skills and perspectives involved in dealing with the problems that we all face. So I basically completely agree <laughs> with that <laughs> and uh, that it is an issue and it needs to change and like one way of making sure that it changes is just like as a white woman myself for example I kind of like to encourage as many younger diverse voices as possible to campaign um, and campaign on issues that are important to them and to define what that kind of what their issues are themselves mm. if they think that there is not like a petition that solves an issue that they face it's not because they're the only ones that face it it's just because it needs to that campaign needs to exist and they need to do it because if they're facing that issue a lot of other people will also be facing it um so yeah and I, I mean that's one reason why the internet is so exciting in terms of yeah. campaigns because it brings these to the forefront so yeah how, how about you also I wanted to ask you Go um what you think like feminism would look like um if men and boys were as engaged as like any other gender was oh i think that we 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 definitely that's a conversation that we fast tracked very very quickly um and i think in a sense you know we were talking earlier about this idea that there is a conversation that happens both ways and i feel like with men because i think we just have to understand how the world works in the sense that if women are supporting the conversation men are supporting the conversation all people from all different backgrounds are involved in that conversation then we will have change happen very quickly and i think what we what we do see a lot of is are people not even disagreeing but just refusing to have the conversation or be in those rooms um, um to, to have those talks and I, I just genuinely feel that if, if we did have, you know, all types of people involved in that conversation, regardless of gender, feminism would be fast-tracked a lot by now. Because there are just a lot of issues that come across as basic common sense. And it's 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 one of those where if, if only that, that, if only we could get people in the room to listen or to just hear those arguments, then these are things that they'll, they'll naturally agree with. Because I'm, I'm yet to meet um, someone in person who, who you know, is who is against equal pay for both genders. Very few people think that, but a lot of people, because the stigma of feminism, without taking the time to be in the room and have that conversation, don't understand what it means. But you know, when you break it down to individual issues, what you'll find is, oh yes, I support you, or I see where you're coming from. 
And I think it, we would just be moving a lot faster if that happened. Um, and I know you were speaking about progress and change, and that leads us on to your, your current big project, um, Sex and Matters, which is a oh, it, which is a fantastic social initiative um, that um, tackles um, unnecessary taboos and shame around the ideas of sex and creates workshops um, that empowers young people with conversations on everything from consent to sexual health. Um, how important do you think it is for us to be having such a conversation like that, especially for our young people right now? Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, and thank you for the intro. That's really very sweet. Um, <laughs> and yeah, no, I think it's really important. And the thing that makes it so important now is that we have finally got like a new sex ed curriculum that mm. came in mandatory in 2020. Um, and it's been updated for the first time, I think, in 20 years. And it just has so much potential because we now, for the first time, have to teach kids about things like consent, what a healthy relationship looks like, mental health, um, friendships online, bullying, all of these kind of things that we never actually had to teach before. Mm, yes. So that's really exciting. And the new curriculum encourages um, schools to teach all kids together and not like separate them. I don't know about yeah. you, but like about periods in schools, it was just- we, we, had, we had a separate as well, boys and girls in different rooms. I remember but, that. I completely agree. And we don't also want to wait until kids have learned falsehoods about consent. Yes other issues and then have to correct it yeah because it's, it's more difficult correcting and an assumption than it is to like make that assumption in the first place healthy and correct so for example we went into um this very prestigious all boys school in london i'm not going to tell you which one it is but <laughs> we went there to give consent classes to the year six kids yes and um we you know we made it very um relevant to a year six's experiences. We talked about like, um, you know, hugging, touching, like asking for people's pens and that kind of like thing. So they can kind of contextualize the idea of consent being not just about having sex, but actually yes. relating to a lot of aspects of your life. Um, and one teacher wouldn't actually let us in his classroom to give this consent talk because he said that consent is too advanced for you. That's ridiculous. But then once we'd finished this consent, um, workshop which by the way was like 20 minutes late because it wouldn't let us in the classroom <laughs> he said um oh okay now which kids are going to go and do arabic and which one's going to go do latin after this and i'm like if arabic and latin is not too advanced for you how is consent too advanced it's bizarre so i think yeah there is this like perception that it might corrupt i think mm. it's completely right but it's just like completely that's such a bizarre anxiety because there's no evidence for that whatsoever if we arm kids with like the healthy understandings of these really important issues then they're less likely to you know have unplanned pregnancies because they have the information they need to protect themselves against yeah. that and make their own choices and yeah it, and it's quite scary though as well like we went to another school in London just last week to give an all-day RSE talk and we were going to do a section on like FGM and female genital mutilation and this was with year 10, so they're much older. And mm. um, um, the teacher said that we couldn't give it because um, a couple of the kids, basically, um, their parents have said they don't want them to learn about FGM. And like one of their parents is a surgeon. And it's just um. like, how are we able <laughs> to do that though? Yeah. Like, how is that okay? Um, so you, yeah, you do like, come to see all these issues anyway sorry I'm going off a bit no 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 but it's 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 all really great and I think you know I think there is this huge huge danger 
when there's certain things that you just don't that we shouldn't have misconceptions about like i think there's nothing frightening than having you know you know a teenager have you know a very alarming misconception about something like con- uh, consent because then that becomes a very dangerous situation yeah. and, I, and i and i think what people need to understand is that without that access to information you put young people you know in a very jeopardizing and, and frightening position where they will make choices completely uninformed that will also completely ruin their lives you know mm-hmm. i remember i remember having a conversation the other day with a, with a group of people my own age and there was this sort of you know friction and an argument about you know what what consent looks like if someone if someone is you know under the influence of drugs and alcohol the answer spoiler alert is that when someone is under the the influence it doesn't count as consent but like even with something to them the, the which they thought was so trivial without having that information you can land yourself in a very difficult almost criminal situation so so it's also important that we under, we contextualize that within within the wider story. I've got like, it's, I hate it when these things come to end. I've got one last question <laughs> to ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think whether it's from sexual health to feminism to, you know, campaigning to, to end period poverty, what is your tip to the young person about how to, to, to make the first step? So I think the biggest tip I'd give is just to make sure your campaign is really as specific as it possibly can be. Yeah. And I know like campaigning to like end sexism or something like that would be amazing. But <laughs> like not It'll take a while. Of, yeah, exactly. So if you can, I kind of like to think of campaigning as um, like a tree. And it's mm. like, if you think of like sexism or racism or classism or whatever it is, the big ism that you're trying to tackle. If you think of that as like a huge tree with like roots throughout history and society. And like this tree has lots of branches that are like symptoms of that problem. Mm, Want to chop off a specific branch. And then if everybody tackles a branch, we'd have no tree left. That's kind of how I like to think about it in terms of, you know, the Tampa Tax campaign, it might seem small, but it was one symptom of like a wider problem that then once that's gone, gives other people more momentum to tackle other branches. And I think it's kind of frustrating being a campaigner because you need your petition to be specific in order to win. Yeah. Because you will then be able to see, okay, they're trying to make this tangible change. They're going to do it in this way. Therefore, I'll support them. But then you have people saying like, oh, you're working on tampon tax. Why don't you work on something that matters? Or like, oh, you're working on helping kids in school, but why don't you work on like sick kids or something? Mm. And it's like, well, you know, you could always think that there's always something else that you can work on. Um, but if you focus on one specific thing, you're more likely to make actual like tangible change. Yeah. Um, that's what I would I literally yeah. got goosebumps listening to all of that because I've never heard it described under that lens and I just think it's fantastic. Um, well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Laura. It's been absolutely wonderful and, and insightful getting a chance to talk to you this afternoon. Um, and, you know, as Laura was saying about, you know, breaking down that conversation into bite-sized chunks. I mean, as we say at the end of every episode, and I've said this since April of 2020, and it's getting up to two years, that, you know, there's no greater gift than being able to have a conversation. Conversations are the way in which we learn, in which we thrive. We've sat here and we've had a conversation about feminism and activism um, for the best part of an hour. And the funny fact is it didn't cost us any thing doing and as a result of that we we had a conversation about something that meant a lot to us and 
And I think that's the important thing to, to go about doing when you have your conversations this week, making sure that you are having conversations that are meaningful and impactful. And, you know, that that is, I think, a key part in activism, just talking to someone about it. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Thank you so much, Laura, for giving up your time to talk to us today. Um, this is being the Being Alive podcast, a weird weekly podcast from an even weirder boy, a podcast made for students by students. Thank you all and see you next week. Bye-bye.